So we were talking about real battles. Real ministers are drawn to real battles. And I was saying that this is a great, uh, this is a great you know, series as we're talking about that as we come into the, uh, this time of uh, uh, 4th of July and we consider all the things that God has done to, to give us the liberty. And I was getting ready to say I really appreciate what Pastor Bob said about the 4th of July and the founding of the nation and all of those things because it's so true. <clears throat> and uh, uh, not only, does, not only does, has God brought liberty to our nation and freedom of religion, but he's setting souls free all over the world. And uh, I'd ask that you pray for Pastor Rajan Niapani. He's in town with us. Uh, he's not here today. Um, uh, he was, uh, last night there was a youth event. He was able to be there for that and get a good old American, you know, uh, barbecue and, and fireworks and all that. It was really cool. But he's in uh, KCK today preaching uh, to the Bhutanese community right here in our, in our metropolitan area. And he's sort of like a rock star when it comes to... Uh, to Nepal and Nepal and Kathmandu and, and all over the region of Nepal and then over into Siliguri, even over into Bhutan, uh, he has <clears throat> been a, a consistent voice since the revolution and there was a fr freedom to preach on the air. He's had a radio program and so when he comes to town like this and, and you know, the, the people know who he is if they're from Nepal or that region of northern India, everybody knows who Pastor Rajan is because he's had a consecutive program on the radio for many, many years <clears throat> and uh, and literally, I'm not exaggerating, thousands have responded to his, his uh, preaching and sent in, uh, they send in uh, Bible studies and they do uh, correspondence and, uh, and that is how they've been able to plant, that in part is how they've been able to gather students for their Bible college and plant churches all over uh, Nepal. There's 43 church plants from his local church alone in the Bible college there in Kathmandu. <clears throat> so it's quite impressive what God is doing, and, and if you want to hear more about him, he'll be here on Wednesday night, and so you don't want to miss that. And so, <clears throat> I appreciate y'all joining us this uh, 4th of July weekend, and uh, look forward to what God's going to do tomorrow night at the Spark in the Park. I hope you guys come out for that. Last week, we reviewed our seven, <clears throat> re, or we, yeah, we reviewed our seven realities uh, sermon series, and we picked up <clears throat> on our fifth reality, <clears throat> uh, real ministers are drawn to real battles. And this reality is going to turn into a, a three-week uh, mini-series, but that's good because we have a lot of things going on here around HVF. Uh, you know, when you add VBS and D2 graduation last week and a Spark in the Park this week, and uh, next week will be Faith and Family Day, the K, and all of those things. We have a lot of things happening, so I hope you're involved in all of those things. Uh, tomorrow, as we celebrate <clears throat> Independence Day, uh, our nation will be 246 years old, and... Uh, we think about how the, the Patriots answered the call, uh, not the New England Patriots, but the Patriots, uh, the original Patriots, answered the call to stand against tyranny with the hope of liberty, uh, and through much suffering and bloodshed, and against all odds, uh, the volunteer army of colonists was able to persevere and surround Cornwallis and defeat the strongest army in the world uh, at that time, and, <clears throat> and we commemorate that effort every year, as we ought. Uh, because of the sacrifice that those patriots brought, <clears throat> it brought liberty to millions around, not just in the United States, uh, but around the world. Uh, we are like, uh, because of that, you know, revolution and then the subsequent government that was formed, it's been a, a real blessing, as Bob was pointing out, in, in liberty. Liberty, freedom to, to assemble, freedom to speak. It was really about the freedom to do what we're doing this morning, to preach the Word of God, to worship freely, and not to be, uh, and one of the things, by the way, that the, that was about was not just freedom from oppressive, tyrannical government, but a oppressive, tyrannical religious system uh, that can also control government. And so <clears throat> that is not a, uh, and I'm not making that up. Many people today probably don't even realize that. And so uh, we are free, and it is a blessed thing to be able to preach the gospel as we've been able to for the last couple hundred years. And so, and by the way, that's not revisionist history. Uh, it is also not the tale of, of uh, you know, racist white patriarchy. I know that's being espoused quite a bit. That's because folks are ignorant of history. They don't understand context, and they don't really understand the oppression and the tyranny, the religious tyranny and the political tyranny that was uh, being, um, you know, foisted upon the people of the colonies at that time. And so <clears throat> it is the reality of men and women, even some wealthy men, and women who pledged their life, their liberty, and their sacred honor. And they, these people, many of them died giving their life uh, so that others could be free. And they gave everything uh, for just the hope of freedom. 
And so it's, it's a big deal. I'm glad we celebrate it. <clears throat> I'm glad we do fireworks and all that too because it's fun. They actually, when they founded the nation, that's one of the things, I forget which one of the founding fathers wrote it, but they actually wrote in there, we should celebrate this with fireworks. So that's one of the reasons we have that tradition. So <clears throat> those men and, and many, many, many others um, uh, over the course of the last 246 years have sacrificed uh, to ensure the ideals of liberty as set forth in the Constitution. And there are times when men of peace are drawn into battle uh, because of the struggle between good and evil, and it just is required. Now, Paul said uh, in the book of Romans chapter 12, and verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with <clears throat> all men. And Paul then goes on to set forth the principles of God's justice, um, his just wrath, and the principles of Romans chapter 13 uh, that teach us to submit to the powers that be. So all of that is contained in that passage. Paul didn't tell men and women of God to sit by idle and watch the world, you know, dive off a cliff into perdition. That is not what he did. Um, and so that is why those who are mature in the Lord understand that inaction is not an appropriate reaction to the advance of the adversary. You have to do something. <clears throat> and it doesn't matter if it's your personal life, your family, your church, your community, or your country. God uses mature... Uh, God, God uses... Ma mature and tender hearts uh, for the things that he cares about <clears throat> and to conquer the darkness. And that brings me to where we left off last week. So if you have your notes with you, last week, um, after my long introduction about General Patton, right, George S. Patton, we, we finally got into the meat and potatoes of, of the fifth reality that real ministers are drawn to real battles. And we saw point one is that, that real ministers, uh, biblical ministers, which we saw a minister is just a servant that's under authority. It's not necessarily the the hierarchy of a church or, or any of those things, though those are ministers, the people that are willing to serve the Lord under his authority, uh, they care about what God cares about. And we examine 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 that teaches us that, that God is, is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's because of God's mercy and grace that he has extended out the church age uh, nearly 2,000 years so that we can continue to offer the gospel to the Lord Jesus Christ. God cares about people's souls. I mean, he really cares, and so we should care. And we saw that we care for every soul because God cares for every soul. Uh, and we also saw that ministering Christians understand the righteous judgment of God. This is what moves them to win people with an urgency uh, that is <clears throat> driven by faith. And we looked at several passages that, that uh, talk about that. Then we saw that God has placed us here to stand in the gap. Right? We need to be Baptists, not Baptists. And so we talked about that last week in Ezekiel 22, 30, and, and how God is looking for a man to stand in the gap. And there was times when he could find none, uh, but by God's grace, he will find uh, men and women today who will stand in the gap. And, and that left us with point four, where God's heart must be our heart. And so <clears throat> for God, God so loved the world, right? He has a heart for the world. And I left you with a charge and an exhortation and an illustration from some of our own living epistles right here in our own church, from the congregation, who love others ahead of themselves. And that's where we left off last week. So that brings us to where we're going to be this week. And if you have your Bibles, let's do this. I, I didn't do this last week, and I was convicted about it as I was reading. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. And uh, we're going to read Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through 18. A very familiar passage, but this isn't just for Sunday school class with the little kiddos and all of that. This is something written to the adult members of the church at Ephesus, um, where you know that same place where they said, "Great is the goddess of Diana." Right? It was a it was a place where the Christians needed a little steel in their backbones, and so Paul uses this uh, verbiage uh, that we're going to read today, and we need that as well. Once we grow from children and servants and masters in the first uh, uh, nine ten verses of this text, then we get to this section in verse ten, and he says, "Finally, verse ten, Ephesians six and verse ten, finally." My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore." having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful for the opportunity to be here today. <clears throat> Lord, what a privilege it is to live in a, in a free society, a free country where we can preach the Word of God openly uh, without fear of persecution. But Lord, even if we were persecuted, we would still preach the Word of God. And so, Father, we're thankful for the reality of your resurrection this morning. We're thankful for the battle that you've already fought to set us free, to make us free in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a heart to love not only people who love us, but to love your enemies, people that hate you. Lord, thank you for just loving us and giving us a heart full of love that overflows on everyone around us. Lord, may we be filled with the Spirit today. May we be girt up in the loins of our mind. And may the things that we look at in the Word of God uh, be used in our life to help us advance the kingdom of God in a culture that is getting desperately dark. We thank you and we praise you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And so now, now that we've read this text, I'm going to ask you to turn in your old, into the Old Testament. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I'll give you some time to get there. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're going to be in verse uh, 29. Now Paul illustrated our preparedness uh, to that of a Roman soldier. Right? And today, I don't want to just give you the, the armor of a Christian soldier. That is important. Obviously, I don't want to minimize the armor. Paul went through that for a reason and, and all of those components. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with that and how important they are and how they are integral to the Word of God and all the different areas they protect from the head to toe. But today, I, I want to just give you a little bit more uh, insight into the heart of the minister that's running into real battles, right? Because we understand as we talk about this subject... Real ministers are involved in real battles, right? They're drawn to real battles. I use kind of a, a faulty example in George Patton, right? Because he's just a guy, and he probably wouldn't, I don't even know if he's a Christian, but he was definitely drawn to real battles uh, in a very physical sense. But spiritually, we as Christians should be drawn uh, to real battles, not just to watch them like a car wreck, right? So we can post it on social media and say, <gasps> no, that's not the point. It's, it's so you, you go to the battle, watch, so you can affect it. You want to see the outcome. That, that's the reality. We're, we're not spectators. We're, we're to engage. And to engage takes more than just the knowledge of, of putting on armor. You've got to know how to use it, right? You've got to know how to use the shield. You've got to know how to use the sword. You've got to be able to, to, to shod your feet and know what to do. You've got to be able to run and, and, uh, and be in the physical condition if you're in a real battle, a physical battle. Well, spiritually, we are to be in the same situation. So the job of the, the pastor, the job of the church is not just to give you information about who you are. It's to actually move you and engage you uh, in the heart to get into battle, right? To do something about what you know. And that's what, that's what this whole thing is about. Equipping the saints of God in the word of God to accomplish the mission of God, right? For the glory of God. That's what we do at HBF. That's the mission, by the way. If you want to know about our mission statement, that's what we're here to do. Equip the saints of God and the word of God to accomplish the mission of God for the glory of God. And so, by the grace of God, I might add, at the end of that. So, and that's all done by God's grace. And so without him, we can do nothing. But because of him, there is nothing that's impossible with God. And so uh, real ministers are drawn to real battles because they care for God's uh, reputation above all else. So point five leads us to that. We must care about God's reputation more than other people's perception. All right, so, so we saw that real ministers care, right? They, we care about people because God cares about people. And man, compassion is, is important. It's where it's at. We should be compassionate. Jesus was compassionate. And all of that's all true. But there's a balance to this. We can't care more about people, right, than, than we care about God. Uh, because without God, we're all hopelessly lost. I was just talking with Pastor Rajan yesterday, and uh, they were talking about the, the animal rights activists in, in, uh, in Kathmandu, right? And, uh, and I was telling him how we... Uh, you know, the, the difference between dogs and cats in, in a place like Asia versus a, dogs and cats here in America. So we have, they don't have pet dogs like we do. I mean, they look at dogs like, man, you let those things in your house? Why? Because dogs just run the streets. Cats are this, I asked him about a cat. We, we were talking about catching mice and you need a good cat that can, with its front claws still, and it can catch the mice and eat them and all that. So we're talking about all this stuff and he's like, yeah, in Kathmandu, there's no, there's no cats that stay in the house. They just run everywhere. You know, cats are everywhere. 
and probably the rats eat those, those cats. There's some big rats in, in Kathmandu. But anyway, uh, but at any rate, so we're talking about the difference. I said, well, we, we kill, you know, we obviously, if we have stray dogs and we have stray cats, we'll round them up, give people a chance to adopt them. And if they don't adopt them, we euthanize them. We kill them. And that's how we keep things clean. Because you can't have wild dogs running around, packs of dogs, packs of wild cats and stuff. That's filthy. You know, just, so our society as a whole has found a way to address that and, He's like, yeah, that would be a good idea, but, but um, there's too many animal rights activists in Kathmandu, so you can't kill an animal like that, which is totally absurd if you've ever been. How many been to Kathmandu, right? So you've, been to, you've seen the people laying on the streets, and, and I mean, they treat the animals better than the humans. It's unbelievable. It's all out of whack. That wasn't part of my message, but I was just saying, uh, I was just telling you that because we got to care about the right things in the right order. I, I, like, I, got, I like animals. I'm all about it. But you don't put the life of the animal above the human, right? Because we believe the Bible. We believe what Genesis says. You should, hey, you should, treat, you should care for the life of your beast. There's wisdom in caring for the, the, the thing, anything that God entrusts you with, including your animals, right? So there's wisdom in that. But at the end of the day, you don't worship that animal. You don't take food out of your child's mouth to give to your, your animal, right? Your animal... Is, is at a different place. But, you know, when you don't have Christ in the center of your, of your culture, all these things get out of whack, and people don't understand what's important anymore, and, and it gets all convoluted. And you know what? That can even happen in regard to, to addressing real battles. We start, we start caring for the wrong things. We say we care for people, but yet we don't care for God. Well, who created people? Well, God did. So we ought to consult God to see what His heart is for people. Uh, because, because just... It's good to feed people, it's good to do social stuff, but at the end of the day, if we feed people and we don't give them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they die and bust hell wide open, well, what kind of Christians are we? Right, that ought to move us. The, com- the compassion that God gives us ought to move us into real battle. So, um, so let's turn, I told you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's look at this text. I want you to look down at verse 29, because there's a lot of causes that we can be involved in today. There's a cause here, there's a cause there, there's a cause everywhere. David comes to the, and you guys know the story, so I'm going to just kind of skip over some of this, but you know the story. David has come upon this battle between the Philistines. Goliath, of course, is in the field, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But when it comes right down to it, his heart is moved, right? It's not just his head. He gets to the point where his heart is moved. Like, he's like, we got to do something about this, and he means it. I mean, he's not just talking. He means it in the core. And as soon as he blurts this out, look at what it says in verse 29, um, his brother Eliab is, is saying, man, you're full of pride. Get out of here, you little punk. And David said in verse 29, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason? Is there not, is there, I'm not just talking, I'm not just blowing smoke, brother. There, there's a real issue here. And, and he wants to be a real minister. He really wants to see God's agenda advanced. And it frustrates him that, that what he sees before him is not being accomplished the way God would have it accomplished. And, and that troubled him in his heart. And he's like, wait a minute. I'm not just spouting off information to stir people up. I'm, he's saying there's a real cause here. It's not my cause. It's God's cause. We should be about God's cause. Because it's God's word. So there was a boy Right? And this wasn't a man, this was a boy. Now back up to chapter 16, 1611, like your Bible. Back up to, to, to 1 Samuel 17, or 16, and let's just kind of look through this a little bit and examine how did it get to this point where this boy is standing before an army that's immobilized, not engaging in the mission, completely armored up, completely ready for battle, but not engaged. How does that happen? Everybody knows what, the, what, what they're there to do. Everybody's dressed for the battle, but nobody's willing to go. Interesting. Verse 11 of chapter 16. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are all thy children, and uh, are here all thy children? Sorry, I misquoted that. And are, are here all thy children? There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. Now a little backstory here. You know about this situation. 
uh, Samuel shows up and he's looking for the next king. He's looking for the anointed, the one he's going to anoint. And he goes through all the boys. I don't have time to go through the story, you know. And he goes through all of them, and none of them are the right ones. Eliab was one of them, the one that was given David grief in the, in the, previous, in the next chapter that we saw. And uh, he's like, hey, do you have another son here? Well, yeah, I got David. I got, yeah, he's out tending the sheep, but he's certainly, he's, you know, obviously it's implied. He's obviously not going to be the king, right? Of course, you know how that goes. Samuel, Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance. He's kind of a pretty boy and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for, for this is he. This is him. How's that possible? He was a boy, and no one really cared for him, but he could be trusted to take care of responsibility of the herds when no one was watching. Right? He was so faithful, nobody even noticed when he wasn't there. And you know what? I think that David, as he was out tending to those sheep, probably remembered Joseph and could identify with being kind of left out. Remember how Joseph was kind of left out? His brothers didn't really want him around. Get out of here, Joseph. You know, David faithfully tended the sheep for the 40-day standoff between Goliath and the armies uh, of uh, Israel at Succoth. This was David's, uh, or this was Judah's property. The strongest, by the way, of the 12 tribes, right? It's, the, it's, it's this incredible tribe of Judah. And they're all just standing there with their hands in their pockets for 40 days, not willing to engage in the battle. And the one from which David and the other seven brothers hailed from uh, is the tribe in which he it represented him. I mean, this was personal to David as he went to that battlefield. He, he was anointed, uh, but not just was he anointed king, he was still just busy doing the business of his father, Jesse. I always tell young people when they get baptized, right, they may get baptized young, I tell them, obey your parents. That's, that's your job, right, until you're 18 or whatever. Just do whatever your parents tell you. Become a disciple, do all of that, and obviously do the ministry whether you're 12, 13, or 14, but do what David did. Just be faithful with the responsibilities your parents give you and continue to be faithful with that because you will grow into a mighty man or a mighty woman of God. And so look down here in verse 16. It says, it says let our Lord now, we'll start verse 14, the paragraph. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. <clears throat> I'm sorry, go to chapter 17. I'm in the wrong place. Go to chapter 17 and verse 16. <clears throat> I gave you the wrong reference. Chapter 17, verse 16. We're going to fast forward to the battle. And the Philistines drew near morning and evening and presented himself, the Philistine, I should say, being Goliath, of course. He drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. And Jesse said unto David, his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and run to the camp to thy brethren and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousands and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. And so we see here that, that David is trusted, not only as a boy with the sheep, but now he's still back with dad. The big brothers are out at battle, and he's basically tending to, tending to the house, right? He's tending to the things his dad wants him to tend to. And for 40 days, for 40 days, that Philistine has been challenging the armies of the living God. And, and David is drawn to this battle. Because he is the servant with a heart for God, right? He doesn't have actually all the armor on. He just has a heart. He has the heart of a, of a minister. He has a heart of someone who's going to join in a real battle. You guys know the story. And so it says in verse 20, And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. He's just obeying. Children obey, Ephesians 6.1. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shout and shouted for the battle. And so he goes down there. David is drawn to the battle. Why? Well, because he's a servant with God's own heart, right? He's a, he's a servant with a heart for God, and he, he's drawn to this battle. He, he goes down to the, to the uh, <clears throat> down to the, to the uh, what's the word there? Uh, trench. He's down in the trench. Reminds you of like uh, World War I, right? Those trenches. World War II, there's always trenches where the soldiers are. So where's he at? He's down in the trench. They're down in the, and he's, and he's what? And he's shouting. He's getting into, the, into it. He's yelling back and forth. 
hey, 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 what? You know, and they're just going back and forth, and they're, and they're challenging each other. They're stirring each other. He's all into that. He's, he's down with it. He's participating. But his job is really just to, to deliver the food uh, because they'd been down there 40 days. The rations are getting short, so they're bringing more food, and, and he's there just to hear and pay attention to what's going on and give a report, an intelligence report, back to Jesse. His dad wants to know, well, how's it going down there? Send me, go down there, listen, bring back a report. I want to know how it's going. He's really just a messenger. By the way, that's, that's all we are. We're in, the, we're in the battlefield right now. We're live in the battlefield. God has birthed us here. We've been born again. We're growing up in Christ. There's a real battle. All you got to do is look around. There's, a, there's this cultural battle going on right now. We're in the middle of it, and we're all, got our, you know, we're all part of it. But are we really making any progress? How many of you feel like we're losing? Hmm, yeah. Maybe. We'll see. But, uh, but I tell you what, it's a battle. It's a standoff. And as he leaves the sheep with the keeper, and he draws closer, he can see the battle is set in array. For years now, he's been studying military formations and maneuvers, because we know that David was a man after God's own heart. He had the Old Testament law. He's, he knows about Moses. He knows how they went out to battle. He knows about how Joshua uh, led the nation of Israel into battle and the very property, right, in which he sits on. It's no different than us today. We know about the battles of Concord. We know about uh, Cornwallis and, and uh, how, he was, how he got trapped and he had nowhere else to go and, and how God uh, somehow miraculously delivered this nation from the, the grip of, of uh, the Brits because, well, Hal wasn't paying attention up in New York, and, and, you know, we just survived long enough until we beat them down. I mean, it was, just, it was miraculous, the fact that we even beat them. It was amazing, actually. Uh, incredible upset. Then did it again, 1812. I mean, uh, I mean it, God has preserved this nation, no doubt about it. Not just once, but a couple times. I mean, to birth us, yes, and then after that. It's, it's incredible. And uh, in the same way, David, is, he's studied and he's seen how um, you know, Caleb and Joshua entered the promised land, how the nation of Israel took AI and how they went through and how they secured the property. I mean, this was, this was his nation. This was, his, this was the promised land, right? This is the place where all the fulfillment of the prophecies are supposed to take place. This is, this is, this is where he lives. He's part of this thing. And so, and by the way, I just when people know I'm not, this isn't like, a, I don't want to go too far with the nationalistic discussion uh, when it comes to Christ. Christ is our first priority regardless of nation, right? So just so you know that, uh, the gospel is first in priority. But his, his favorite station, you know, when he was watching television, uh, and then when he didn't have that, he had his phone app, was the History Channel, right? And he was, and he was watching, uh, you know, uh, those combat uh, war stories and, you know, how everything was going on. And so he had all that stuff down. He knew about battle. He knew about Joshua. He knew about victories. He understood uh, what happened in Judges. And he saw Gideon. And he saw Jephthah. He, he knew all those things. And so let's just pick it up in verse 22. Let's see, see what's going on with David. In verse 22, it says, And David, as he left his, his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage, and he ran into the army, and he, he came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the, uh, the, champion, the Philistine of, Gal of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake, according to the same words, but notice at the end of the sentence here, and David heard them. Now this guy's been spouting off for 40 days. All of a sudden, David's in the, in the, in the lineup, and he hears what's going on. Verse 24, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, the man, I should say rather, fled from him and were sore afraid. Now David was something different. Everybody else was troubled and they ran when they, saw, when they saw Goliath, when they heard what he had to say. You notice something changed in the story. There was a man that showed up with a heart for God and he heard what the adversary had to say. And it didn't scare him. It actually motivated him. It, it drew him to a real battle because he understood some things. Some things were not right about this situation. Where all the other men, they were dressed for battle. They were doing all the. They were involved in all the rancor. They were yelling and they were 
they were beating their you know chests and they were rattling their their uh, sabers and they were doing all the things that that they would do to to get ready for battle. But when it came right down to it, a champion stood up uh, of the enemy and and he stands up and he's big and he's large. He's undefeated and all of a sudden. All that bravado just sank right out of their feet into the ground, and they were scared. They were sore. That means they were very afraid. Oh, man, what's going to happen to God's chosen people? I mean, they're all scared and running. They were cowards. Why would a, why would a soldier in God's army cower in the sight of God's enemy that was on their property? I mean, just think about it. Why would everyone be scared? But we know why. They did not believe. They did not really believe. They knew. But they didn't really believe that that was God's property. They didn't really believe that they deserved to be there, that that guy deserved to be gone, and that this this victory deserved to be theirs. They didn't really believe that. They They were not really believing that they could take this guy on, obviously. Verse 25. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? I mean, have you looked with your eyeballs? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Oh man, interesting. So there's this big challenge, there's a big guy, this big champion, and when they talk about him, they say, he has come up to defy the armies of Israel. Well, you know that's not going to sit well with somebody with God's heart. And that did not sit well with David. So David begins to listen to the soldiers, right? He's there to listen. He's there to take a report back to his dad. What's he going to tell his daddy? Well, dad, all the soldiers are afraid because there's a big giant down here. And what they say is this giant has come to defy the armies of the living God. And that's what David's hearing. And he's listening to this thing, and he's there to listen. He's there to hear this so he can take it back to his father. And he's hearing this business, and it's not really setting well with him. So David begins to listen to the soldiers exalt the virtue of Goliath and predict God's defeat. That's what they're doing. They're exalting the virtue of Goliath. This champion has come to defeat us. I mean, he, and, and they're predicting their own demise. I mean, they don't even know that, it, that, that, that Jesus Christ tells them that they're more than conquerors. Oh, wait, that's the New Testament. New Testament Christians would never do that. So the soldiers, they saw Saul's riches. In the same context, they're like, you know what, though? All the riches are available. You can get into Saul's house. You can get, a, you can get out. Of, you don't have to work again the rest of your life, and you can have one of Saul's daughters to whoever defeats him. The king is ready to purchase a, a win. The king's ready to buy a win. Who can I bribe to go out and face the giant? Who's going to go out and, and take him on? Not, not because this is an offense to God, but because you get a paycheck. Does that make any sense? No, it isn't about a paycheck. It isn't about being free in Israel. That's not what moves David. The soldiers saw Saul's riches. David saw God's will. The soldiers saw God's riches, and David saw God's will. They're focused on the enemy. They're focused on riches. But nobody there is saying, what about God's word? What does the Bible say about this situation? And what is our place in it? What are we to be doing? Right? Not just knowing. What are we to be doing with what we know? And his voice pierces the consciousness of those gathered for the battle. As David asked the question, it's the same question that God's asking. Who will remove this reproach from Israel? In essence, he is saying, I can't believe that you are allowing this to go on for 40 days. This is embarrassing to the living God. What are we doing here? Look at verse uh, 26. I'm not making this stuff up. And David spake to the, the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's like, what, what are we talking about here? What, why are we here? I don't understand this. What, what is going on here? It doesn't, even, it doesn't even make sense. David is not in the same place as the rest of the nation of Israel's army. His, here, here comes a guy from tending sheep, not even hanging out with the army, just kind of comes down with his cheese, you know, he's ready to, to hear a report and go back, gets involved, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm down in, the, down in the trench with these guys, and all of a sudden he's like, what, what is going on around here? He didn't even go to boot camp. Right? And he's like, wait, this, is, this, this guy's defying the armies of the living God. What's going to be done to the guy who takes up for God, who cares about God? Who, what's going to happen to the person who is not worried about everybody else, but is worried about what God thinks? What's God think about what's going on around here? What's God think about what's going on with his word and the people who represent his word? What kind, who's going to remove the reproach of the enemy of God standing in your face talking down to you, and then what's going to happen when the, the people of God, for goodness sake, stand up and say, this guy has come to win? David isn't having it. He's like, what are you talking about? What's going to happen to the man who stands up for God and says, wait a minute, he owns this property. Get this uncircumcised dog out of here. See, David has his priorities in order. He understood the order of things. He understood that this, this, this Philistine was no more than a dead dog. In the, con, in the context of combat, I know we've got to be gentle nowadays. Nobody can take this kind of talk. But listen, beloved, this is for keeps. All the nice talk was over for David. It was time to deal with reality. Uh, by the way, we're dealing with the seven realities of HBF. <clears throat> so David's brothers say, David, get out of here, you punk. No, they didn't say that. That was, that was the new Brian edition. But anyway, and so, by the way, verse 27, the people answered him after this manner, saying, so shall it be done to the man that killeth him. Talking about Saul and his riches and all of that. That's not what's motivating David. What's motivating David is the fact that this is, this is an embarrassment to God Almighty. Verse 28, and Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto them, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither, you little whirp? No, I, I put that in there. And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and thy naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Eliab has no idea what his little brother's up to. He's presumptuous. He's like, I know your heart. Well, well, did you read the previous chapter, Eliab? God said, you know, about the heart. God's the one who knows the heart. Look now on the council, or look not, not on, his, on his countenance, the height of his, stance, of his stature. Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Eliab, you don't know your brother's heart. I don't know your heart. God knows our hearts. Eliab didn't know his brother's heart, but he assumes that his brother's up to no good. He's like, get on out of here, dude. What are you talking about? You just come down here to stir it up. He did come to stir it up, all right, but it wasn't because he was naughty, and it wasn't because he didn't have a heart for God. And David responds to the accusation, and that's where we started, with a servant's heart. He responds to that accusation of, what are you doing here? What are you talking about? Why are you so stirred up? Why are you so zealous? And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason? Is there not a purpose to be stirred up against the adversaries of God on a battlefield, no less? Is there not a reason? Is there not a purpose in what we're doing that is beyond ourselves, that is, that is tied into the heart of God Almighty? What have I now done? I am obeying orders of dad, brother. I'm here because dad told me to be here. And I'm also here because God has brought me here for such a time as this. Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause for action is what he's saying. What are you doing, big brother, to stop this reproach from among uh, the people of God? In verse 29, and David said, is there not a cause? You know the rest of the story. You guys know the story, like the back of your hand. I do too. 
But it's good to go over it every so often. Because David has confidence in his God and more respect for a lion and a bear than this uncircumcised Philistine. He didn't say, who's going to kill this mighty lion from the Philistines? Who's going to kill this big bear, right? Who's going to get Putin, right? Who's going to get the big bear? He doesn't give him the honor of a bear. He doesn't give him the honor of a lion, which David has already slayed. This is an uncircumcised Philistine. He's a dog. Who's going to get this rabble out of here? And he means it. He's not, he's not kidding. He's serious. Who's going to take this guy on? And as a matter of fact, David took, when he did go out to battle, he took five stones because he wasn't just going to kill Goliath. He's going to kill all of his brothers, all five of them. They were all going down. Today, David's story is played over and over again in the lives of God's servants. You, you want to do something about the reproach. The reproach that's upon the body of Christ. You say, well, Brian, you're just a little too zealous, man. You're going over the edge. You just, oh, you are not sensitive to culture. I mean, you, you got to understand, things have changed. People just do not, that is, you know, that is, that is violent to talk from that pulpit. That is one direction, too. That is not a dialogue at all. You are up there preaching, for goodness sake. I think that's what the Bible told us to do. And, hey, I'm all about dialogue. Let's sit down and do discipleship. Let's walk together. Let's talk together. But there is a time to preach, by the way. Oh, you're too zealous. You don't get culture. Hey, guys, beloved, there are more reasons not to go to battle than you can shake a stick at. But at the end of the day, the battle belongs to the Lord. Right? Jesus, this is what happened. We talked about it last week. He died on the cross because he loves the world. Jesus, the Father, loves the world. His son died on the cross, and he wants to see everyone saved. Now, our job isn't to go out and slay people. If that gets you wound up and you want to go slay people, go join a different army. God's army is to win people, to take people from death to life. It's 180 degrees the other direction, even those that hate us even those that are enemies. We're to love them with the gospel. We're to give them the, the opportunity to, to know Jesus Christ. Methods are important, by the way, as David pointed out, by using his own sling instead of Saul's armor. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about various methods, right? I don't care if you change the music style a little bit, you do, you know, whatever, you, you change the carpet color. You, what, that, that stuff is, is superfluous. But the word of God is, is non-negotiable. Saul's armor didn't work for David, so he took a sling, right? He, he understood that he had to work with the tools he had. The minister of Christ says that the gospel is <clears throat> relevant and the power of God is enough. And beloved, I know that is the case. I, I mean, I, can, I raise my hand and I say, I've experienced it. I was lost and now I am found. I was blind and now I see, right? I literally was against Christ in my life and now I am for Christ. There was a time I, I was happy to work for Satan, whether I knew it or not, and now there's a time I'm working for God. It's, how does that happen? It's the power of the gospel. I've been defeated and I've been brought back to life. Praise God. I was an enemy of the cross, but now I'm not, right? Paul was an enemy of the cross, but then he wasn't. And beloved, there's lots of enemies of the cross out there, and you don't shrink from that. You go toward that. Why? Because you understand if these people don't hear the gospel in time, they literally will die and bust hell wide open. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ has already paid for their sin. I know that's anathema to a lot of Calvinists, but that's what the Bible teaches. So then what happens? Well, when they get at the great white throne judgment, whose blood is on their hands? Yeah, God Almighty, because they in essence killed him with their sin, and they never repented and asked forgiveness and received the grace and goodness of eternal life. And the judgment of God, as it says in John chapter 3, the same passage where it says God so loves the world, tells us the wrath of God already abides on the people who don't believe, right? They are already, they're in that situation. So we have to go out and we got to care about the people in our culture, which is point B. We got to care about your culture, 
One of the casualties in the culture is God's testimony. One of the casualties is God's testimony in the culture. That's what you are seeing in not just the United States, but around the world right now. The casualty, right? You care, when we talk about caring for casualties, we think about people that are hurt and wounded, and all that's true, and we should be sensitive, compassionate, all of that stuff. I'm all about it. Not to the exclusion of God's testimony. Not to the exclusion of God. God is the one who created us. You've got to start with that premise. God is the one who has the answer to all of man's problems. He is the one who's given the instruction manual for, for life and eternity. I mean, we have his words. If you don't start there, you're not going to end right. I promise you that. You don't have to believe me. You don't even have to agree with me. That's irrelevant. It is what it is. It's true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so one of the casualties is God's testimony. The testimony of Jesus Christ, by the way, is the spirit of prophecy according to Revelation 19.16. So we don't have to worry about God fulfilling his word. It is going to happen the way he said. The issue is, is that what we have seen is when men fail to fulfill God's word. It's not about God failing to fulfill his word. He will fulfill his word. He has, he will. It will happen. The issue at stake today is just like the nation of Israel. Who among us is going to step up and fulfill God's will? Because we care for God's testimony. We care for what God has put us here on the planet to do. That We really believe that we are here primarily our every day of our life to minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to make disciples of all nations in every way we can possibly until Jesus Christ comes and gets us. God doesn't need us to defend him, by the way, but he does desire we represent him well. Do you think God needed David to defend Israel against Goliath? He did not. He could have sent a lightning bolt down. I mean, the time, you've seen it already in history, uh, if you rolled back the tape, before David ever stood on that battlefield, God had already defeated the enemies of Israel without their help. And he'll, send, he'll, he'll send bees, right? He'll, send, he'll knock over statues and he'll do all kinds of stuff. They steal the ark, he gets the ark back. He didn't even need their help. What was he looking for? He was looking for people who would identify with him, <coughs> that would care about his will and his word and would go out to battle for him. And so how do you represent the Lord in this culture, in the time in which we live? Well, back in 2006, and for those of you who are just joining us, this is actually a sermon series I've kind of updated. Uh, this is specific to HBF called The Seven Realities of HBF. And we're just going through and looking at these realities, these things that really talk about our DNA and, our, and, our, and who we are. And so back, I, just, I preached this the first time in 2006. And back then, long, long ago, in 2006, I wrote this. There's a new landscape. Now, let's see how prophetic this was. And this, wasn't, this is not scripture. This is just, you know, research from back in the day. There are three major changes that are reshaping the landscape in which we read and engage with the Bible. These shifts are most apparent among today's youngest generations. So, in a sense, they give shape to the present and the future reality within which we read and, and interact with the Bible. First is the steady rise of skepticism. It's creating a cultural atmosphere that is becoming unfriendly, sometimes even hostile, to the claims of faith. In a society that venerates science and rationalism, it's an increasingly hard pill to swallow that an, an eclectic assort, assortment of ancient stories, poems, sermons, prophecies, and letters written and compiled over the course of 3,000 years is somehow sacred in the Word of God. Even in just a few years, Barna Research uh, has been conducting state-of-the-Bible the interviews and the percentage of Americans who believe that the Bible is just another book written by men increases. So does the perception that the Bible is actually harmful and that people who live by its principles are religious extremists. Okay, so that comes from Barna, George Barna uh, and that organization. That's what I was reading in 2006. Do you think that's gone backwards at all? No, that, that, there's been a little gas put on that fire, hasn't there? 2018, let me go forward a little bit. So what do you do as a pastor? Well, you read that and you go, wow, I have an eclectic, uh, most people believe, many people believe this whole book is just an eclectic uh, bunch of stories that was compiled over 3,000 years by over 40 different authors, and it, we really can't hold to that anymore. I mean, come on, what are you trying to do, Brian? I mean, I know you're really a Baptist inside. I can see it. You can't fool me. You can drop the suit, man, but you're still a hardcore Baptist. Okay, you got me. You got me. 
Well, this is what Andy Stanley did. He, first, he took the Baptist off his name, and, and then he, uh, um, he did this. He said this, and I'm quoting. If you were raised uh, on a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia or the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. And of course, then you know what he goes on to do. Say, well, you know, let's throw away the Old Testament. We don't, I mean, I believe the Old Testament, but let's just go to historic Jesus. By the way, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? He doesn't say that part. Because the word of God is, this, God's word is the spirit, I mean, the spirit of prophecy. He's going to fulfill his word. He's already fulfilled a large portion of it. But there's even more to be fulfilled. And it's true, every letter of the law. And that is an extreme, an increasingly extreme view. That God has given us a, an absolute authority by which we can judge all things in life. We can know our gender because of Genesis. We can know what's right because of the law. We can know, we can know of grace and love because of the Creator becoming flesh and manifesting Himself among us and dying on the cross in our stead. All of those things are what the Bible says are absolutely true. And those are the things that a Bible believer is going to hold to, which will therefore make you extreme. So, beloved, you've got to make a decision. Are you going to be an extremist? Oh, I can't use those. Those words cannot be applied to me. That's too much. I need to find a softer, softer, gentler way of approaching this so I will be accepted. Beloved, I got news for you. You will not be accepted because Jesus was not accepted. Now, you should be wise. What can we do? I'll get to that. I got to get done because I'm almost done. So let me keep going here and not get on a hobby horse. But Andy did this because he feels that the Old Testament is just the backstory, not the foundation of the gospel. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. The Old Testament is quoted or alluded to more than 300 times in the New Testament. And Andy has thousands of followers and is considered a leader among Baptists, some of which are even in the Bible Baptist Fellowship. Can you believe that? There's dudes that, they, I mean, I'm like, come on, man. So Generation Z, let me talk to you about generation. Because this isn't your daddy's generation. Not even my generation. It's not, I mean, even, I mean, this thing is changing quick. On this chart, and I'll just be quick, over on the right-hand side, yeah, the right-hand side, you'll see those, those, uh, those bars. If you go at the top there, there's the silent generation, the boomers, the Gen X, I'm the Gen X, the millennials. I'm not even talking about millennials. We're talking about Generation Z. And so Generation Z is, uh, you know, born after 1996. Millennials are, in this chart, is 77 through 95. And so, um, but that, that, the main thing I want you to see here is that uh, back in the silent generation, on the top one, uh, only 10% of the people were what they call nuns. Uh, not, not, like, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, right? Nuns. They have no affiliation with anything. I, I don't want to be affiliated with anything at all. And, uh, and you can see increasingly, um, the, uh, <clears throat> the one on the, the far left side is they would, uh, people would identify as Protestant, 50%. Used to identify as Protestant, now it's 22%. 14 would be Catholic today in Generation Z, 22% back in the, in the, uh, back in the older generations. The green bars is uh, agnostics and atheists. Uh, other world religions make up that little, uh, looks to be like a blue-green, I'm colorblind, uh, bar there in the middle. And then there's the nothings, and then all others are at the very end. So I don't know, sometimes you know they say, what is that? Numbers lie and liars use numbers or whatever. But anyway, the statistics are interesting <clears throat> because that 31% at the bottom is growing. It's growing. And uh, what that means is, is they're just completely uh, ambivalent about, about anything to do with... with they, they don't take any position. I'm not an atheist. I don't, I'm not against God. I'm not for God. They're just literally nothing. That's why they're called nuns. There's nothing. There's nothing there. They don't, they don't care. They just don't care. It doesn't matter to me if I go to heaven. It doesn't matter if I go to hell. I just don't care. I don't believe it. I don't believe anything. I don't believe anything. Now, the, interestingly enough, uh, statistically, uh, evangelicals are growing in number. Um, now, not all the evangelicals are equal, of course, but just from a statistical point of view, uh, the, those that would say that they believe something about the gospel have grown even from the 1980s forward, which is interesting to me. 
And the good news is, is I believe truth trumps religion. And ultimately, uh, many that have abandoned some of the seeker-sensitive stuff from the 80s and 90s are really probably looking more for truth today. So the second thing that back in 2006 that, was, that I said was a gentleman named Gabe Lyons proposes that, <clears throat> that in good faith, the broader culture has adopted a self-fulfillment as it is uh, unlimited measure of moral good. What that means is the shift is underway and moves authority from the outside of ourselves, like the Bible, to within ourselves. So we basically become our own God. We become our own judge. Increasingly, increasingly Americans are rejecting external sources of moral authority, both spiritual and civic. Instead, of the, instead, self has become the spiritual and moral compass for the vast majority of adults. And so, you know, that statement is exactly what's happening in our culture. Who is God? Well, I am God. Now, I'm not saying that, by the way. I don't want God to hit me with a lightning bolt. I'm not God. But that's what people are saying. In essence, I'm, you're, they have their own truth, and they're their own God. How many of you have heard that? Well, that's my truth, right? I'm, I'm a monkey, and you can't tell me any difference. That's my truth. Why? Because there's no empirical evidence outside of who you are. Now, that's absurd. It's totally crazy. But yet, that's, that's the way people increasingly are wanting, they want you to believe their lie. That's craziness. But that's what's happening. It's getting out of, out of hand. So the centralization of self has become abundantly evident in the amount of time, though. Now, that, let me, let me uh, you know, quit teaching, go to preaching here. The amount of time we spend, in, preacher included, on devices, satisfying our souls through the tree of knowledge. Right? There's a reason that there's an, on my phone, i got an Apple phone, it's laying over there, that it's got, a, it's got a bite out of the apple, even though I know in Genesis it wasn't an apple, but it, whatever. They got the bite out of that apple. Why? Because it represents the tree of knowledge. I mean, the marketing is not even subtle. And what do we do? We, we search after these, these devices, these little idols that we, we go after. And by the way, they're useful, and I use them. And, but we got to be careful. In, in practice with the younger generation, the standard for truth will not be their Bible, but their search engine. What is true? Well, not what the Bible says. What does my search engine say? Siri, what is? Who is Goliath? Who is Moses? I mean, how many of us have seen that? It's happening. And 25% of America, <clears throat> who are the nuns, interesting. And let me give you this. 25% of America who, is, who are nuns, they have, I just gave you all those statistics, they are not... They are not against. Uh, they are not only not against, they are still warm to church. And they would say, I'm not agnostic and I'm not an atheist. I still believe in God. What? How can that be? They're just simply not engaged in anything of an institutional nature from government to school to society. And they are disconnecting from society in general, even though they're, they're saying, I'm not against it. Now, that's a, that's a conundrum. Now, I'm not, I'm not bringing the answer here completely. I'll just hang to the end here, and I'm almost done. The third thing that we talked about, and again, all of these things that, that, that I'm just adding to what we already knew in 2006, it's getting increasingly worse. It's getting increasingly worse. The third thing that I brought up in 2006 is this explosive growth of digital tools, which I'm already touching on, such as Bible apps, daily reading plans, study resources, and online communities after unprecedented access to the scriptures, which is true. The, in essence, I'll just, uh, just boil it down to this. The technology has also given us an ability to get the truth in places that we wouldn't normally have been able to get it before, and that's all true. But let me ask you something about the technology we use. How many of you can sleep without your telephone in the room? Oh, praise the Lord. I wasn't actually expecting you to put your hands up. I like that. Thank you. How many of you under 30 can do that? handful of you. Don't lie. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's obvious, though, that people are tethered to what? The dopamine. We're tethered to the dopamine that, that comes from our devices. The, the, whether it's the clicks or the whatever you're looking at that gets you connected. I mean, there's a million different marketing ways. And, guys, that's, there's a reason why Steve Jobs didn't let his kids have tablets and stuff. He understood what was going on. So these devices, by the way, they are good and they're useful. I'm using one right now, by the way. So I'm not saying God can't use them. That'd be hypocritical. I'm just saying we got to be careful what we love. 
Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth, here it comes, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He that doeth the will of God. Hey, listen, this is the bottom line. At the end of the day, when it comes to all of these issues, we're not losing because we've already won. The issue is we are messengers like David. Our job is to come and observe these things, observe the battlefield, and then do something about it. We have the words of eternal life. We don't have to get scared. We don't have to freak out that people are crazy. They're crazy, not you. You've got the word of God. I've got the word of God. Cultural Marxism and tyrannical globalism. Uh, I don't know if I said that right. Uh, there's another word for that, tyrannical globalism. I forgot what it is. But I'm not just talking about globalism like trade. I'm talking about global governments. Okay, uh, Those things uh, are, are, are being reinforced and filtering uh, out uh, opposing opinions. And it's not just a left-right situation. It's increasingly about the harnessing of the blocks of our society for commercial and political manipulation and control. Individual identity is dying under the current climate of cultural Marxism. So, so, there's a problem. Where do you find the solution? When people are ambivalent, they don't care about anything, they don't, they can't, they don't want to identify with anything. Listen, I can give you the answer. I know that sounds arrogant, but David could give the answer also with the Philistine problem. The answer is Jesus Christ. Voila. It's not identifying with a political party. It's not identifying, I know it's 4th of July, with your national identity, although I love America. Let's die. I'll die for America. I'm not against America. At the end of the day, though, that will not save you. That is not our identity, ultimately. Our identity and our freedom is not ultimately found in our, in our status as an American citizen. Our freedom and our identity is anchored solely to the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Word of God says. I don't care if it's Karl Marx. I don't care if it's Ping over there in China or Putin or, or whoever, the White House. At the end of the day, you're made free because a man named Christ died on the cross for you. You're alive today because Jesus Christ is alive today. You are free because Jesus Christ has set you free. And you're a servant because we're bound to serve him with the grace and the goodness of God. Now, people need that identity. They need to understand that, wait a minute, I can be anchored to something that is greater than all of this other stuff, something that is so much more better, so much magnif more magnificent than anything that, that I could even imagine. Guys, that is not make-believe, although you're going to be told that. You're going to be called that. People are going to call you names. Oh, you believe in cunning devised fables. You don't throw out the Old Testament just because you don't think it, it fits. It is the way, the truth, and the life, beloved. God's word is fulfilled, and it is true, and Jesus Christ is alive. You get rid of the Old Testament, get rid of the whole Bible. Now, we don't live there, but we, we see it fulfilled in Christ. It's absurd to give up ground on truth when the truth is the only thing that makes men and women free. People do not have to die without hope of eternal life. You know, Cass County has a very high suicide rate. Since I've lived here, its suicide rate has been uh, above the national average. And you know what that is? It's a symptom of hopelessness. And beloved, who has hope but us? We have hope. We have life. We, you know what? We have the way, we have the truth. And it's not us at all. It's, it's, the, it's the promise of God's word. I have a bunch more statistics, but for time's sake, I'm just going to forego those. You can check them out yourself. I counsel Christians on a fairly regular basis who have talked or are talking about suicide. Some have even committed or tried to commit suicide. Obviously, I'm not talking to them if they were successful. But they believe that God ultimately is not enough. They've come down to the battle. They believe the lie that the giants have come to destroy them and that only money is going to save them. And who has the courage to stand against sin and death? I, get, I got news for you, beloved. It ain't the preacher. I'm not the hero of the story. Jesus Christ is. He's already stood there. If you go back to 1 Samuel and read the rest of the story, all the army, once that thing was defeated, you know what? They, they all come out of those trenches and they charge at the Philistines and they got after it. Why? Because they recognized the victory was theirs. Beloved, we have the victory. If you're born again, that's why we are so, so involved in discipling. Because you have to learn that you have the victory.
You have to learn the promises that God has given to you so that you can go out and teach others also that Jesus has already defeated the giant. He's already defeated. There is nothing new with Marxism that we haven't already covered the last century with 36 million people or 60 million people being murdered. We know where all that goes. Okay, kick that to the curb, man. We got the words of eternal life. And that's, and that's what we got to go with because that is enough. Man, I tell you what, families, they are broken, but they don't have to be. Families are broken. Over 50% of the, or no, not quite, almost 50%, 40-some percent of the children born, I already covered this a few weeks ago, you know the statistics, are going to be born into families that are just not ideal situations. And out of that, 25% are not going to have a father present. Beloved, those are real battles. Do you care? Do you care that God didn't design it that way? Do you care that those moms and those kids are hurting? Do you care enough to take the Bible and try to get it there the best way you know how? Those are the battles that Jesus has already won. Some of that's social, but that's just a symptom of the bigger issue, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not getting where it needs to go on time. And beloved, that's our, that's our mission. It's our mission. The battle's been won, and we need to get there. Just as the battlefield in David's day, there, there was this big problem, this big enemy, and it bound people in fear. And the servants of God, you know what they were missing? It wasn't armor. It wasn't all the knowledge. Listen, you know what it was. It's the end of the message. What did, what did change, what changed the tide of the battle? Somebody with heart. Hey, beloved, if you doubt it, don't. Jesus has a heart for you. Saved or lost, God has a heart for you. What changes humans is the heart that God has for us. The fact that he has defeated sin and death and get, he's freed us up to go and win others likewise. It's amazing that we are his ambassadors. He's put us in this battlefield so that we can go forth and tell everybody the good news. He's won! He's won! He's won! Not just on Easter, but every day of the week. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for uh, defeating the enemy of sin and death. Thank you for leaving us here today. It's 4th of July weekend. We're excited about all that you have us in